I should practice more. Maybe I need to use it a couple more times. Anyway, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses uh, 23 through 27 are going to be our focus this morning. Uh, as we dive back into uh, our study through the Gospel of Luke, uh, this section of Scripture, we're really going to focus in on what does a disciple look like? What is a disciple? What is someone who, uh, is someone who follows Christ? The Bible is pretty clear on this, and Jesus is pretty clear on what it looks like to follow him. I know uh, Jonathan and the youth, they went through a, a study of can you be a Christian and not be a disciple, and they had a lot of fun with that, and I think a lot of struggle with that, and it was, it was fun walking with him through that as well. But, but as you look at Scripture, what you find out is that the Bible really doesn't know anything of a Christian who is not a disciple. Listen to this, three times in the entire New Testament, the word Christian is used. In fact, if you look in the, in the book of Acts, what you find out is that Christians never actually called themselves Christians. They were disciples, and other people said, look at those Christians. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, according to one text in Acts. And so when we start talking about what a Christian looks like, what we're really asking is, how can I get to heaven? Right? I mean, isn't that what we start talking about? We start trying to figure out a way to make sure that we're in, to make sure that we are part of the people of God. And it actually becomes pretty clear when you read what Jesus says to his followers. He says, follow me. Guys, I don't want to oversimplify this for you this morning, but it comes down to this. You can't follow Jesus if you're not following Jesus. You ever thought about that? You can't say, I'm a Christ follower... If you're not following Christ, it doesn't work. In fact, it's impossible. It's impossible to follow someone you're not following. Do you follow? It's impossible, right? But we try all the time. Oh, I'm a Christian. By what, what we mean by that is I'm someone who loves Jesus and follows Jesus, or at least that's what we should mean by that. But somewhere along the line, we've gotten in the idea, no, I want to go to heaven. Wanting to go to heaven doesn't qualify you for heaven. You actually need Jesus. You actually need to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to back up to verse 1. You, you can look there with me if you want in your Bibles or listen really closely. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 first because I want to give us some context before we get to verse 23. And so just hang with me just real quickly. I, I want to pull this up to verse 23. And so verse 1 of Luke 9 says this, And he called the twelve together, the twelve apostles. These are the inner core group of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Just real quick here. So he calls the inner group, right? He calls them together and he says, Listen, guys, I'm going to give you power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. That's pretty cool. He says, and I'm going to send you out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So you're going to go out and you're going to tell people about the gospel and you are going to heal people as you do it. But then it gets a little confusing in verse 3. It says that he told them, take nothing for your journey. My wife, she's not in here this morning, would go crazy. And no bag? You mean I can't pack ahead of time? You mean I can't go prepared? This sounds like how I prepare to go somewhere. Like, I don't, I'm not taking anything with me. If we forget it, we'll go to Walmart, right? I'm sure the, if the hotel doesn't have toothpaste, Walmart does. That's always my response. And she always, anyway, that's a, 
we won't get into that this morning. She's not in here. But, but anyway, but Jesus says, don't prepare. Don't take uh, your staff. Don't take your bag. Don't take bread. Like, don't even take food with you. Don't take money to buy food. And don't even take a change of clothes. Just go. What's he saying? He's saying, go and depend on me. Go and depend on me to provide for you as you go. It says in verse 4, In whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. In other words, go into one house, stay there. Don't go from house to house while you're in town. Just chill right there as you preach the gospel. Verse 5, And whatever, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Y'all didn't believe? Too bad. See you later. That's what he says to do here. Verse 6, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. I will say, just for matter of qualification, later when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, This time take a tunic, this time take money, this time take a sword. And so this is not a good philosophy of ministry. Jesus is teaching them a lesson here. And so he says, Go and do what I tell you to do. Don't prepare for it. I will take, for, take care of you as you go. Then we come to verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Herod was a, a local ruler, uh, and he hears about everything that's happening. And he begins to be confused. He's like, what's going on? Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. This is John the Baptist. He's the guy who came in preaching about Jesus ahead of time. By some, verse 8, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So everybody has a different idea about what's going on. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod says, who is this guy? What is going on? What I find interesting here is that Jesus has been doing ministry for a while now. He's been doing healing, and he's been doing teaching and all this, but Herod doesn't hear about it until Jesus' followers begin to go out and do the same. It begins to be a movement at this point. He begins to realize that his power extends past just who Jesus is. And so Herod says, wait a minute, I thought I killed John the Baptist, which he did, right? I mean, he cut off John the Baptist's head. Uh, I know that's a wonderful picture this morning, but that's what he did to John. And so he says, I thought this guy was out of the picture. And so he's confused. Then we come to verse 10. Y'all still with me? You following? Verse 10, on the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Verse 13 says, But he said to them, You give them something to eat. This is a pretty interesting little thing. So Jesus sends these guys out. They go out and they heal and they do all these amazing things and God provides for them. Jesus provides for them the whole way. It's amazing, right? They come back and verse 10, Luke tells us that they come back and they say to Jesus, let us tell you about all that we have done. All that they had done. Now I don't know if at this point it's led into something where they're feeling a bit more confident in themselves than they ought to, but you can see where that would lead, right? Hey, Jesus, let me tell you about what I did. Let me tell you about all the amazing things that I have accomplished. And Jesus says, that's great, boys. Come on, come over here. We're going to go out here to this desolate place, to this countryside, and I'm going to teach you some more. And he does. But as he does, everybody else hears about it in the local uh, countryside as well. And so they all come out to hear from Jesus. 
And the day wears on, it says. Jesus apparently was not short-winded. He preached a lot. And so if you don't like having long sermons, you don't like Jesus. I'm just putting that out there. But, but he says, he's there and he's preaching and he's preaching and it's, and it's going good. But the day's getting long and their stomachs begin to growl. And the disciples say, hey, we don't have enough food to feed everybody. And I feel bad eating in front of them. Could you send them on? Like, can you get them to go get something to eat? Because I'm getting hungry, Jesus. I'm sure they are too. I'm sure they were real worried about the crowds, right? You always pretend like you're worried about everybody else when you're hungry. At least other people do, not me. But, but anyway, so they, they were super worried about these crowds. He's like, you need to send them away to get something to eat. And he said, you give them something to eat. Remember how this whole exchange began. They came home telling Jesus all that they had done. Then they say, hey, there's all these people, they need to be fed. And Jesus said, why don't you do it? And look at their response. And he said to the disciples, or, or verse 13, it says, but he's, no, let me back up a little bit. Verse 12, sorry, my eyes are a little tough this morning. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. So that's a lot of folks, right? 5,000 men plus whoever came with them, their, their, their wives, their children. We don't know. We know there's more than 5,000 at least. Probably a lot more than that. He says, you give them something to eat, they say, we can't. We only have five loaves and two fish. They're already forgetting the lesson that Jesus tried teaching them when he sent them out with nothing. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. But when he tells them to feed the 5,000, they say, wait, uh, we don't have enough. We don't have enough supplies we don't have enough provisions we don't have enough to do what you're calling us to do you see the problem is is that the disciples have began to look at what they have and who they were instead of who jesus is and what jesus had he's having to remind them yet again guys you trusted on me to go out and share the gospel and i took care of you the whole way this is no different it doesn't matter how big the need is. If God calls us to that need and to minister to that need and meet that need, guess what? He's going to provide whatever's needed for that need. We have a cliche for that, don't we? Where God guides, He provides. He takes care of us along the way. He provides for us to do what He's called us to do. And so when He tells these men to feed these people, He's not saying, you come up with the food. He's saying, you give them what I'm about to give you. Be reminded of who I am. Remember, it's not what you did. It's what I've done through you. And so we come to verse 14. For though there were about 5,000 men, and He said to His disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so. They're obedient. And had them all sit down. Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. And so each apostle basically gets to carry home a basket full of leftovers. Pretty good deal, right? These men are learning to lean on Jesus something we need, would do well to do. Guys, one aspect of being a disciple, of being a follower of Christ, is trusting Him. Like actually depending on Him to take care of you. That's a huge concept, isn't it? 
in a culture where we're taught to be self-sufficient and independent and not depend on anyone, Jesus says, depend on me. He says, lean on me, depend on me, and I will get you through this. I don't know what 2018 has in store for you, but you're not going to get through it without him. You need to lean on him. You don't have enough. Your meager little five loaves and two fish aren't going to take care of the 5,000. You need him. Trust on him. Be sure of who he is. This settles it for Peter. Look at verse 18 through 20. I promise we're getting to where we're going. Uh, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Peter is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He's convinced that he's the Savior that God had sent. He's the chosen one of God, if you will. The one that God was going to send to heal his people, to to save his people. He's convinced that Jesus is the one. The crowds aren't convinced, right? I mean, they're waffling between John the Baptist, Elijah, and maybe a prophet they didn't even know the name of. They're like, it's got to be somebody because he's doing amazing things. But Peter understands who Jesus is. Guys, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to know who he is. We're not ever going to depend on him until we know for sure who he is. We're never going to lean on him until we know that he is our Savior, that he is our Lord, that he is our God. And so Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Savior sent from God. And this is where it gets confusing, right? Verse 21, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. What? I thought you just sent us out to preach the gospel and you're showing us who you are and you ask me who you are and I tell you and you tell me not to tell anybody? Jesus, that doesn't make any sense at all. But then when we come to verse 22, we understand his reasoning. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, Peter's understanding of the Christ of God, Peter's understanding of the Savior coming from God is that the Savior would come in and get rid of the Romans, get rid of the people who were pressing in on them and set up God's kingdom on earth. His idea is a general coming in to destroy the enemies of Israel. And so when he says you are the Christ of God, he understands that he's the Savior sent from God, but he doesn't understand everything to do with that. And if so, if Jesus' disciples start walking around telling everybody, we have a general, we're getting ready to overthrow the Romans and take over, his point's going to be missed. Jesus says, listen guys, the way that I'm going to save the world, the way that God is going to use me as his Savior is not the way you're thinking. See, as a disciple, we have to be ready for Jesus to change our mind and change our focus and change the direction uh, of what we think ought to happen. He says, i got to go be killed and on the third day be raised. i got to go be killed. I have to go and give my life in your place. Jesus is saying, I'm not the kind of Savior you're thinking, Peter. And so, so we, we see Jesus' response to him of keep it quiet for now. All of that leads up to verse 23. And this is where we see Jesus go from, I'm going to die, to commanding his disciples to die as well. So Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to them, or he said to all, that's important, right? Does he say this to the 12 apostles, to the inner group, to the special uh, uh, superhero uh, Christians? And he said to all, if anyone, that's important as well, if anyone, not if the, the special forces of Christianity would come after me, but if anyone 
would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Someone has put it like this. To, to follow Jesus means you subject everything in your life to his lordship. You forsake all that he has forbidden and pursue all that he has prescribed. In other words, you deny yourself and you follow him. You don't do what you want to do. You do what he has told you to do. Which is sort of opposite. When we start talking about denying ourselves, isn't that opposite of everything that we're taught? Everything that our culture pushes at us? Aren't we taught to, to do what makes us happy? Isn't there a song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad? That sounds really good until someone is happy by stealing your stuff, right? That worldview kind of falls in on itself pretty quickly when people start doing what makes them happy and it hurts you. That doesn't work. No, no what Jesus says is, I say, so I mean, we have to understand this. Like even in the world around us, we understand that doing what makes us happy doesn't work. We have to understand even in the world around us, like when people do just whatever they feel like doing, it messes things up and hurts people. We can point to life after life after life of people who did whatever made them happy and it ended in ruin for them and their family and everybody they know. But Jesus says that we are to deny ourselves. We're to give up on ourselves and give our all to Him. Like I said, that's opposite of how we're typically taught. But it's exactly what He calls us to do, to give up our rights and give them to Him. And say, you do with me what you would have me do. You, you use me the way that you would, uh, the way that you choose. It's sort of, it, you know how um, we talk about self-control. And we know folks who are self-controlled, right? I mean, people who, they, they'll, they'll go on a diet and they'll quit eating the foods that, that make them gain weight. And they'll start eating the foods that make them healthy. Or they'll go to the gym every day. Or, you know, they'll save up for something in the future. And so you look at them and you say, man, they got a lot of self-control. That's sort of what Jesus is talking about, only it's something even more than that. You see, it's different than self-control in that it's self-denial. So often self-control is, I'm going to do this, and then later on there's going to be a payoff. Self-denial is, I'm going to do this because Jesus told me to, whether it's good for me or not. Like, it's good for you to eat healthy and exercise and do those things. It's not always good for you to follow Jesus, physically speaking. I mean, if he calls you to go to Iran and spread the gospel, that's not necessarily a healthy thing to do. I mean, think about it, guys. What he calls us to do is put him first in everything. And so that means sometimes, like, like as I read this and as I studied this, my, my natural tendency is to show you how this can be good for you in your life, in everyday life. And let me tell you, it is. It's good to deny yourself. It's good to have those habits. It's good to be convicted. It's good to be self-controlled. But that's not the ultimate goal. Like our physical well-being is not the ultimate goal of this self-denial. It's to glorify Him. It changes the purpose of self-control and makes it about Him. I mean, we can deny ourselves ice cream, and that's great, and it's good for us, kind of. I, I think eating ice cream is not a bad thing sometimes. But, but I, I mean, what He is saying is to say no to your dreams and yes to His calling. He's saying, say no to what you want and yes to where he is calling you to. See, sometimes Jesus calls us to do things and give up things that people will tell us is crazy. I guarantee you, if you talk to someone who's not a believer, they will tell you that you are insane for giving money to the church. Like, why would you throw your money away like that? That's not a good financial investment. Yeah, but it's a good eternal investment. So he says, deny yourself. 
make me the center of your life. Look at, look at what he says. He says, take up your cross. He says, if anyone would follow after me, they must deny themselves and then take up their cross. To take up your cross means that you are totally and completely out of the way. Someone who was carrying their cross out of town was heading to the place of their execution, to the place of their death. They were completely under the control of the Roman government and of their authority. And Jesus is saying, you pick up your cross, you submit completely to me. You obey me in everything. There were, someone has said there's one thing you knew about a guy carrying a cross out of town. He wasn't coming back. You are walking to the place of your execution. Jesus uses one of the most vivid and offensive pictures of his day to describe what it means to follow him, to walk to your death. And what he meant was, your life is no longer your own. It is his. He says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a part of the people of God, you'll say no to you and yes to me in everything. And, and he adds this word in, which, I mean, we could probably get away with this, but then we come to this word, and he says, take up his cross on Sunday. But wouldn't that be nice, huh? Take up your cross on Sunday and follow me. That's not what he says at all. He says daily. I think sometimes in our culture today in the church, we think that Sunday's the only day we've got to be a Christian. Sunday's the only day we've got to obey Christ. I went to church. I'm good, right? No, he says obey him every day. To submit to him every day. Every day is his. It's not a weekend gig. Like It's not something that you do on the weekend. It's actually something you do Monday through Saturday. Like every day you get up and you make your choice to follow Him. You make your choice to do what He has called you to do. You make your choice to be who He's called you to be. That's what it means to follow Him. That's what it means to serve Him. That's what it means to be one of His people. See, what, Sometimes I think we think that coming to church is our service to the Lord. Actually, that's His service to us. We get to be here and worship Him with His people and be renewed so that we can face another week. This is not actually the, the be-all, end-all of our service to the Lord. If it is, we're doing it wrong. This is the start of our week, not the end. This is the beginning of our following Him this week. If this is the only time you speak of the Lord or worship the Lord this week, you're not doing what He's calling you to do. He calls us to serve Him every day. And He says, and come, follow me. And so then we have this picture of going where Jesus goes, putting our feet where his feet are, stepping where he steps, acting like he acts. I, I remember when I was in high school, there was this uh, thing, it kind of became cheesy, but it was a bracelet that had like WWJD on it. Y'all remember those? What would Jesus do? I know it sounds cheesy and cliche, but guess what? That's a really good theological point. Like what Jesus is calling us to do is to ask ourselves at every moment of every day, how would Jesus respond to this situation? Before I say anything, how would Jesus respond? What would he do in this case? You see, to truly trust him, to truly follow him, to truly believe that he has your back is to say, Jesus, I'm going to do what you would do. How can I best look like you? That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to follow him, is to figure out ways that we can be like him. How would he respond? To that person who did that thing. I'm going to keep it super generic. I'm sure he could fill in the blank. How would he respond to this decision I have to make at work? How would, he, how would Jesus respond to my spouse? How would he respond? That's what it means to follow him. But he goes on and he tells us to count the cost. Look at verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? He says, count the cost. If you think keeping your life back from me is the answer, you are wrong. He looks at us and he says, no, the answer is actually giving your life up for him, to serve him. And he asks the question, he says, what does it profit a man if he, gives, if he gains the whole world but loses himself? What happens if you have everything this world has to offer you and you end up in hell? What good have you done? Like if all of your earthly dreams come true, but you still die and go to hell, what good is that? Jesus says, you need to think about the cost that is going, that's going to be exacted from you. If you give up your life, you actually uh, receive it back. If you give up your life, you actually save it. But if you're trying to maintain control of your life and tell God, I'm going to do it my way and not your way, you end up losing it. Are you willing to give your life to him this morning? And he goes on and he says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He says, Whoever is embarrassed of me, whoever is unwilling to follow after me now, I'm going to be ashamed of him and I'm going to be embarrassed by him when I come back. You're like, what does that mean? Well, let me read you uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 12, just very quickly. This is Paul speaking uh, to Timothy, a young pastor, and Paul's getting ready to die. Uh, and as he gets ready to die, he encourages Timothy with this. He says, speaking of God, he says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so that's the, what he has given us. That's the message of the cross. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says he has saved us. Then we come to verse 11. Speaking of the gospel, he says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. So Paul says, my purpose in life is to spread the gospel. My purpose in life is to tell other people about Jesus. That's what I do. Verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. The reason why Paul is in prison, the reason why and not very long after he writes this, he's going to have his head cut off, is because he's simply telling people about Jesus. Nothing else. He's simply preaching the gospel to people as he comes in contact with them. So do you think he wasted his life? Listen to what he says next. But I am not ashamed. There that word is again. I'm not ashamed. He says, I don't feel a fool. See, when you're ashamed of something, you feel foolish. You feel like you've been taken advantage of. You feel like you've been sold a bill of goods. It, you know, like when you buy that thing online and it looks super awesome and you get home, you're like, man, this is terrible, right? I mean, they didn't even include all the pieces. Paul says, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like I got ripped off. I don't feel like I got taken to the cleaners. I'm not ashamed. Even though I'm about to give my life and die a pauper, even though I walked away from a, a prominent role in my religious community, even though I walked away from all these things in my life, I'm not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? For I know who I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Why is Paul not ashamed? Because he trusts Christ. He trusts him to do what he said he was going to do. Guys, how do we stay faithful day after day after day, no matter what? We trust Him. Paul is saying, I didn't waste my life. Because what He has given me is better than anything this life could offer. What He's given me is eternal life. He says, I trust Him to do what He said He was going to do. 
The difference between people who follow Christ and people who choose not to follow Christ is the people who follow Christ really believe that Jesus is better than anything else. And in those moments you don't follow Christ, you're actually saying, I don't believe Jesus is better than this. I don't actually believe he's better than this thing I'm about to do in disobedience to him. That's a moment of faithlessness. And so Paul says, I don't feel like a fool. I don't feel like I've wasted my potential or my life. I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time because God has brought me to this moment. God's kingdom is far more important than anything uh, that this world could ever offer. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to walk with Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does this look like in, in real life, every day, Monday? Does this mean that we all need to go and, and start a commune and, and uh, you know, set up a bunch of extra rules and, and be a super holy group? Well, actually, you know, no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, I, I mean, sometimes that's our thought, right? We need to separate from the world. We need to become monks. We need to do all this. That's not what it means. Be a follower of Jesus is simply whatever moment you're in, do what he would have you do. Do what he's called you to. So you take it and you apply it to parenting. How do you raise your children then? You raise your children in the way that God would have you raise them. You treat your children as Jesus would treat your children. For me, that means self-denial. I'm going to be straight up with you. A lot of the stuff I do for my kids isn't so much for my kids as it is for me. Because I enjoy that look they give me when I do it. I don't want to see that look of disappointment when I don't. When I don't give them that or I don't give them this or I say no to that. Guys, a lot of the, the problems our kids have are problems in our own hearts where we refuse to deny ourselves. We refuse to treat them the way that Jesus would. And so we end up creating children who believe the world revolves around them. Same way with marriage. How do we treat those whom we love? How do we treat the person we're married to? When we speak to them, we treat them as Jesus would speak to them. We treat them as Jesus would treat them. We love them as Christ loved the church, guys. Ladies, we respect, you respect your husband as unto the Lord. You're like, you don't deserve respect. I understand that. But he also says, love you as uh, Christ loved the church. And I'm going to step out on a limb here and say that none of us deserve the love of Jesus. That door swings both ways. Same way with friendship. Guys, when we share in friendship, sometimes it means saying things that people don't like to hear. When it comes to our family, when it comes to our job, we approach our job the way that Jesus would approach our job. When it comes to our money, do you give in a way that pleases the Lord or do you give when you have something extra after you've spent it all on yourself? Do you support His work and support the gospel? Guys, what it comes down to is are you ashamed of Christ or not? Are you willing to stand with Him and say, I really believe He is better than anything else? And that's going to affect every aspect of your life. If you were to take an inventory this morning and you were to ask the people in your life, do I look like Jesus when I'm doing this? What would their answer be? Do I look like him? Am I submitted to him? Am I denying myself or am I indulging myself? That's the question that Jesus poses for you this morning. If you're going to follow him, he says, deny yourself and come follow me. Give your everything to me. Not just on Sunday, but every day. What does this look like in your life? If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you say, I, I'm bought in. I've been following Christ, but as I look at my life, I'm indulgent. I'm not denying myself. I'm doing whatever I want when I want, and when it lines up with what Jesus wants, that's good. Otherwise, 
you know, when's the last time, if you looked at your life, when's the last time you did something in the name of Christ or for someone else that did not immediately benefit you, that was actually denying yourself to serve him? When's the last time that happened in your life? Has it ever happened in your life? Or is your life all about you? If you're following Christ this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, I know, believe me, I know there's some places where there's a huge gap between what he's calling you to and what you're doing. Every single person in this room is guilty. But that doesn't mean we have to walk out of here this morning with our head down, sad. Man, I tell you what, first Sunday of the month, the, the pastor just beat us all up. Well, no, that's Jesus' words, not mine. Don't, don't blame me, blame him. But anyway, but he, he calls you to repentance. He calls you back to himself. No matter how badly, how far you've missed the mark. Remember, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. Where's Jesus going the entire time he's on this planet? To the cross. What happens at the cross? He dies in our place. Guys, if we were capable of denying ourselves every time we should deny ourselves, Jesus would have never had to go to the cross. Our sins are a direct result of our selfishness, of our desire to please ourselves. If we could abstain from that all the time, he wouldn't have had to die. No, he calls us as believers to follow him and to deny deny ourselves, but he also went to the cross to pay for all the times we don't. So if you're here this morning, you're like, man, I messed up. Join the crowd. John says that if you will confess your sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That he is faithful to make you new, to clean your heart and make you who you ought to be. And so I, I encourage you this morning, 2018 is upon us, first Sunday of the year. If you're someone who's trusted in Christ, say, Lord, help me to deny myself and follow you this year. Whatever that means, I'm laying it all down for you. Come as, as we sing and, and come and pray for that especially. Lord, show me where I'm not doing this and show me how I can. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've never followed Christ, you've never said, I want your forgiveness, why not this morning? What better way to start 2018, the first Sunday of the year, and say, Lord Jesus, from this point on in my life, I'm going to follow you, whatever that looks like. Wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. If you would stand with us, and as you stand, I'm going to ask you,